Thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you liked today's message. Uh, We're continuing our series in Mark's Gospel this morning. Last week, we looked at the reasons God gives us not to fear. Primary among them is that God is with us, and so we need not fear. Our sermon this morning is titled, Listen to Him, and I'm going to give it a subtitle today. That is, Glory on the Mountain and Misery in the World Below, which seems appropriate at this time. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 29. I hope that you have your Bible with you and you can open that up and follow along. That will help you. What I'm hoping to do this morning is to place our focus squarely on Jesus the Christ, to lift up his great name as we gaze on his beauty and his glory and what is referred to as the transfiguration of Christ. Great things happen on high mountains in the scriptures. The most dramatic was probably when the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. God's appearance there was so awesome that the people at the foot of the mountain were not allowed to touch the mountain or they would die. And Moses was afraid as he met with God. So listen to this account from Exodus chapter 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him, in thunder. So big things happen on high mountains in the scriptures. At Mount Carmel, God displayed his mighty power through the prophet Elijah. You remember the story. There is this big altar and there's a bull on the altar and there's, they've drenched it. And the prophets of Baal try to set it on fire and they cannot. But God calls down fire through Elijah and the whole thing is consumed. Even the altar itself, it's consumed. He defeated the prophets of Baal. In 1 Kings 19, God appeared to Elijah on Mount Sinai to comfort him and to tell him what his plan was. Elijah thought that he was the only faithful person left. He said, I alone am left. And God said, no, I have 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And Jesus, during his temptation in the wilderness, was taken to a very high mountain and tempted by Satan. He defeated that temptation with the word of God. So mountains are often places of the dramatic works of God in the scriptures. This morning, we come to another mountaintop experience where God's glory is put on display. It's an event called the transfiguration of Christ. So be encouraged by these words of scripture. Let's read verses 2 through 8 of chapter 9 of the Gospel of Mark. And after six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. 
and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Mark begins his account with this phrase, after six days. Now, you might not think that means much, but Mark doesn't usually mention time frames. But this one is likely here because Moses was on Mount Sinai six days before the glory of God descended on the mountain and the law was given. That's in Exodus 24, 15, and 16. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. I believe Mark is tying together two things here. On Mount Sinai, we have six days, and then we have the giving of the law. Here at the transfiguration of Christ, we have six days, but this announcement about his death, and then the glory of Christ is put on display. Mark is tying the life and mission of Moses, the deliverer of God's people out of Egypt, to the life and mission of Jesus, who came to deliver his people, everyone who would believe in him, from sin and death. Mark is in essence saying, Moses was great, but Jesus is 10,000 times greater. After all, Moses needed someone to hold up his arms during battle. And Moses doubted that he could go and speak the word of God to Pharaoh about the plagues. But Jesus is the perfect deliverer who has come not reluctantly, but willingly. And he has come in power and in glory. Now, why did they go up on the mountain in the first place? They went up on the mountain to pray. This detail is not in Mark's account, but it appears in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 9. The mountain is most likely Mount Hermon, which is 9,000 feet above sea level and 11,000 feet above the Jordan Valley. So the climb up was long, and Peter, James, and John grew tired. They went up to pray, because that's a big part of the way that Jesus gave glory to his heavenly Father. Before many of his miracles, this phrase is written, he looked toward heaven, or it may simply say, he prayed. So just six days before, Jesus had told his disciples about the necessity of his death and that he would be raised from the dead. And the disciples are discouraged. They're not expecting him to die. They're confused. They are in need of encouragement, and they are about to get it in spades. But why just take Peter, James, and John? not the others. These three were certainly Jesus' inner circle. When Jesus healed Jairus' daughter, Peter, James, and John were the only ones who went in with him. In Galatians 2, chapter 9, Paul mentions that Peter, James, and John were men who seemed to be pillars in the church. So Jesus reveals his glory 
which will encourage these three men who are going to become pillars in the church and write the new, some of the New Testament. But then two other men appear on the mountain, Moses and Elijah. We're not told in what form they took or how the disciples recognized them, but somehow they knew who they were. But we are told what they were talking about in Luke 9. They were speaking of Jesus' departure, his exodus. They were speaking of the death of Jesus and undoubtedly his resurrection and the glory of God that would be revealed on the cross and then at the resurrection of Christ from the dead. They were speaking of Jesus' march toward Jerusalem where he would sacrifice his life to pay for the sins of all who would believe in him. They were speaking of the unfolding of God's plan of redemption that they had been waiting for for more than a thousand years. The news delivered six days earlier had so discouraged the disciples. Now it's being discussed by Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, even as Jesus radiated the glory that he had before the world was formed. But let's take notice of a significant difference between Moses and Jesus. When Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law, the glory of God descended and his skin shone so much that he had to wear a veil when he came down. He had been in the presence of God and was reflecting the glory of God, but not so with Jesus. Christ's glory emanated from within. The cloud of the glory of the Lord has not descended yet. So Jesus is not reflecting the glory of God. He possesses the glory of God. Jesus embodies the glory of God. Jesus is the source of this glorious light. Jesus is, as Hebrews 1 says, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, sustaining all things by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So this Jesus that Peter and James and John have been following is not just a man. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a rabbi. No, he's God. The one and only son of the one and only God. God's glory is often accompanied by light. In the Old Testament, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that led Israel in the wilderness, or the glory of God that filled the temple so that Moses could not even go in, or the glory of God on the mountain when the Ten Commandments were given, were all accompanied by great light. And as we look to the new heavens and the new earth, in Revelation 21, we're told that in the city of God, we will not need the sun or the moon because the glory of God will be our light. In God, there is no darkness at all. Jesus is the light of the world. It had to be so encouraging for Peter, James, and John to see Christ in his glory just six days after being so discouraged to learn that he would die. They still don't have a complete understanding. But God is building their faith day by day, bit by bit, so that they will become the pillars of the church. And this transfiguration of Christ is part of that process. So they see Jesus and his face is lit up like the sun. And his clothes are startlingly white, whiter than any launderer could bleach them. His face shined with the glory of God, and his garments are blindingly white. 
This is a monumental event that no one on earth has ever seen. And it had a lasting impact on the Apostle Peter's ministry. The transfiguration is a confirmation of his faith. And it's a confirmation of ours. But not only do they get a glimpse of Jesus' glory, they hear the voice of God on this mountain. The voice of God which commissioned Jesus at the beginning of his ministry now reaffirms his majesty as he prepares to go to the cross and die for our sins. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Here's how the Apostle Peter describes this years later in 2 Peter 2, beginning in verse 16. And we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received the honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to this. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter, James, and John, they've fallen asleep. They should have been praying. We're going to see this again in the garden, not too, not too, not too distant future. They wake up. And they see Jesus and his majesty, and then the cloud of God's glory descends on them, and they are afraid. They see Moses and Elijah with Jesus, and Peter foolishly offers to build three tents for them. The text actually says he didn't know what he was saying. Douglas O'Donnell wrote that God rebukes Peter for the first church building program. He wants to build holy shrines for holy people in the holy land. But then... Something dramatic happens. Elijah and Moses disappear. And only Jesus is there. And God speaks to them out of the cloud. And God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. That's the point. Jesus only. Listen to him. The law, represented by Moses, and the prophets, represented by Elijah, are now fulfilled in Jesus the Christ. Moses and Elijah have done their jobs. So now, God thunders from heaven and says of Jesus, listen to him. Listen to him. Moses and Elijah testified of Christ, but Jesus is the Christ. Moses obeyed God 1,500 years before Jesus was born. Do you know how he did it? This is fascinating to me. The same way that you and I can. He obeyed as he looked to Jesus. Let me prove this to you from Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, 23 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they did not or because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ 
greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Christ has not been born yet. He's 1,500 years in the future. But Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking to the reward. There's a great lesson there for us for how to run the race of life. And Jesus does it the same way and calls us to do it as well. Jesus considers the shame and reproach of the cross as being more valuable than all the kingdoms of earth. That's what Satan offered him up on the high mountain. If you'll bow down to me, I'll give you all the nations of the earth. But Hebrews 12 says this about Jesus and about us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knows that there is no crown of glory for him without the pain of the cross. That was the plan of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Jesus knows that the suffering of the cross will bring life to millions of people who will believe in him. Jesus knows this. But do we? Do we? Do we listen to him as we run the race of life? Do we listen to him as we look upon Jesus and listen to him? Let's pick up the narrative in Mark 9, verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Two questions here. Why doesn't Jesus want them to tell anyone what they have seen? And what about these prophecies regarding Elijah? I'll deal with these two just briefly. The instruction to the three is not to tell anyone until Jesus is risen from the dead. The glory that they've seen on the mountain needs to have a context. And it will not be properly understood until the resurrection and the ascension have taken place. And then I referenced the the question about Elijah a few weeks ago. Jesus taught them that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. So that prophecy has already been fulfilled. But not only that, Jesus says, they killed John the Baptist and they will kill me. So they have experienced the glory and the majesty of Christ on the mountain. And now they're coming back down the mountain to the sinful problem-filled world below. Rafael Sanzio's last painting hangs in a gallery at the Vatican. Most people think it's the best thing he ever painted, even though he did not quite finish it. At the top of the painting is the transfigured Christ. On either side are Moses and Elijah. They're in great bright light. One level down, 
you see Peter, James, and John, and they are shielding their eyes from the glory of Christ. And then down at ground level, there are the nine other disciples, there are some scribes, they're arguing, there's a boy who has a demon and his father who is pleading with Jesus. The painting shows the stunning contrast between the glory on the mountain and the troubles in the world below. Between the radiance of the glory of God and Jesus Christ and this faithless generation whose only hope is Jesus, but they don't really know it yet. So this morning, we've looked at the transfigured Christ, his glory. And now we're going to examine what happens in the world below where sin and sickness still trouble us. Verse 14 of our text. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Peter, James, and John have had a mountaintop experience with Jesus, and now they come down the mountain to these troubles below. A father in the crowd calls out to Jesus. His son has something that looks like epilepsy, but it's complicated by something else. There is a spirit a demon that inhabits this boy that makes him deaf and mute. It also throws him down and sometimes throws him into the fire. So he asked his disciples, the other nine, who were at the foot of the mountain, if they could cast out the demon. They were unable to do so. We'll get to the reason for that in just a minute. Verse 19. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? I don't believe he's speaking only to the disciples. Because there's no one in this generation that seems to understand who he is and what he has come to do. Jesus then asks a good question of the boy's father, like any caring physician would. How long has this been happening to him? The father answers, since childhood. So this is not a short-term issue that might get better in a few days. The father's answer serves to magnify the power that it's going to take to heal this young boy. The father knows that the demon is trying to destroy his son, throwing him into fire, throwing him into water. That's what the enemy tries to do to deface or destroy the image of God in men and women. That's why the Apostle Peter writes this in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, 
prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. The father then reveals his doubts. He says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Let's read Jesus' response beginning in verse 23. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus says, I think indignantly here, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. He rebukes the father for his tiny faith. The father immediately utters what some people think is the greatest prayer in the Bible. I believe, help my unbelief. This prayer is really good news for you and for me. Because it means that our faith does not have to be perfect in order for Jesus to act. The father desperately wants to believe that Jesus can heal his son. But he has doubts. So he asks Jesus to help him with his doubts. Our narrative continues in verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, they're probably ashamed to ask him publicly, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, if you remember, I think it was about six weeks ago, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus had sent them out two by two to heal the sick and to cast out demons. And they had done so. And they were excited about what God had done through them. Let's remember the authority with which Jesus sent them out. Mark 6, verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. Mark 6, verse 7. So why could they not cast out this demon? Jesus identifies the issue. It's prayer. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Prayer expresses humble dependence on God, and a lack of prayer indicates a reliance on self. And prayer is ever so closely related to faith, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. So in the time that we have remaining this morning, I want to look at three kinds of faith that Jesus encountered when he came down from the mountain. And then I want to propose a biblical way that we can increase our faith in Christ. When Jesus came down from the mountain, he encountered no faith, weak faith, and mustard seed faith. No faith, that's a faithless generation. Weak faith, the disciples' inability to cast out the demon. And mustard seed faith in the boy's father, the kind of faith that can move mountains. Now, we know what no faith looks like. It looks like the scribes and the Pharisees who are probably jeering at these nine disciples' inability, probably saying something to this effect, Jesus is not all that great. His disciples couldn't do what they said they could. 
or others in the crowd who are just waiting to see the next miracle, the next bit of entertainment. And when there's no entertainment, they walk away. That's what no faith looks like in a faithless generation. And Jesus thunders against it. How long am I to be with you? Bring him to me. And then there's weak faith. That's what's going on with the nine disciples at the foot of the mountain. They could not heal this boy. What was their problem? Did they not have the right technique? Did they not say the right words? They didn't have the right incantation. They hadn't had enough practice. They didn't have enough experience. No. The problem was a lack of power, and that lack of power stemmed from a lack of prayer. No prayer, no power. That's what Jesus says in Mark 9, 29. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. But over in Matthew's account of this same event, we're going to see the difference between weak faith, no faith, and mustard seed faith demonstrated in actions. So listen carefully to this sentence in verse 14 of Matthew 17. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. Douglas Sean O'Donnell in his excellent commentary on Matthew says this, only in Matthew's account do we see this father on his knees, that's the right posture, calling Jesus Lord, that's the right title, and asking for mercy, that's the right prayer. I'm going to repeat that. The father is on his knees, that's the right posture, calling Jesus Lord, that's the right title, and asking for mercy, that's the right prayer. Weak faith, small faith, is not directed to Jesus. It's absorbed with itself. It's a do-it-yourself kind of faith. But mustard seed faith is small on self and big on Jesus. I believe. Help my unbelief. Kneeling, calling someone Lord, and asking for mercy is not the posture of self-worth, is it? It's the posture of faith, though. And faith is what pleases God. Now, I promised you that I'd give you ways to increase your faith. And some of you will probably be disappointed because they aren't new and they aren't clever and I don't have an acronym, but they are biblical. These are three things that I'm hoping that you'll take away from the message this morning. Look at Jesus, listen to him, and pray to him. If you will behold the Lord in his beauty and power like Peter, James, and John did on the mountain, you will be changed. You will become, over time, more and more like him. You will reflect more of God's glory back to him. You will image back to God his glory as you were intended to do. So here's the scripture I want you to remember this morning from 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I'm going to read it again. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. How can we behold the Lord in his glory? We can read the scriptures. We can read the Bible and read of his life. 
we can read about the church for which he died. And when we do, we are further changed from one degree of glory to another. We can pray to him. God is glorified when we humbly pray to him. And God answers always in the best way possible, his way. And then our sermon title. Listen to God as he speaks of his only son, Jesus. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Listen to him when he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Listen to him when he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Listen to him when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Listen to him when he says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Listen to him this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this time. Um, we thank you for your kindness to us, that we have the technology to still reach out to people, even though we cannot meet together on Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, for providing all of that. Thank you, Lord, for all the brilliant minds that you created who created all of this technology. Lord, we thank you for your word, how rich it is, how much we can get from just a few verses in the scriptures, how much we can get from a single chapter about the glory that belongs to Jesus Christ and the troubles in the world below for which he came to die. Lord, we thank you for the power of Jesus Christ who can promise us abundant life, who can say to a demon inside a little boy, come out and never go back. Never go into this boy again. And that's what happens, because he has authority. Lord Jesus, thank you that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you, so that we can go into the world and preach and disciple and baptize in the name of Jesus. Heavenly Father, if there are any within the reach of my voice, who do not know you, would you draw them to yourself and give them the precious gift of faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen.